Well, we are in the Gospel of Luke, and over the last two weeks or so, we have looked at Jesus' transfiguration, which really is a sneak peek of his coming glorification after his death and resurrection. The disciples got to see that early. And in turn, his disciples' inability after the fact to cast out a demon when previously they had been able to do it. Well, we pick up the action right as the crowds were astonished at Jesus and how God's majesty, that is his kingship, was on display in his rebuking of the same demon his disciples were unable to deal with. And in turn, his healing of the boy, it was tormenting. We're going to pick it up with verse 43, and we're going to look at just a few verses today. Verse 43, the first A part, and in your Bibles this may be over the heading, Jesus again foretells his death. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to him. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless this time of teaching and our meditation on your word, that it may really simply just grow us in your Son, in his likeness. We pray all of this in his name, through the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, if you remember from last week, what prompted the crowd's astonishment uh, was Jesus rebuking a demon who had repeatedly attacked a man's son, his only unique son, a description used of both Jesus and John's gospel, but also of Isaac in the book of Hebrews. And he would attack this boy by way of what we would think of as epileptic seizures. And as we talked about last week, the Bible does not make a distinction between a spiritual attack and a physical one in terms of they might be both the same thing, or at least coming from the same place, though not always. And by rebuking the demon, Jesus demonstrated his authority over the demon like an owner calling his dog uh, to heal. Jesus didn't need anything other than his word, his speaking, and the, the demon immediately complied. Satan and his demons, or the demons, are not equals with the Son of God. That's really how pagans think about such things, and it's, it's how demons probably want us to think about them. But that's not what Scripture teaches. No, demons are God's rebellious spiritual creatures. And as we saw with Jesus and Legion, what, about a month ago, they absolutely fear him. And they absolutely obey him when in his presence, and rightly so. And as we discussed last week, demons don't always attack by way of outright possession. Like we see with Job, they might very well attack by way of our finances or our families or the weather or our bodies. There are many ways demons can attack a person without ever possessing them like a Hollywood exorcist type movie. And like Job, we might not realize we are under demonic attack when it happens. And of course, the typical means a demon works against us is not like what we see with Job, but rather by way of appealing 
to our sinful desires for things that are not ours to take, or with half-truths, or by appealing to our fears, or perhaps our insecurities. So, for example, with Eve, Satan uh, did not try to possess her, let alone attack her body. He appealed to the beauty of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, and her desire to grow in wisdom by eating from it, and in turn, by calling into question God's goodness for keeping it from her. Adam and Eve were meant to take from the tree and eat, just not yet. And for the moment, it was held back from them, and that really was the test. Would they wait upon God to eat, to receive what he had promised to give them, or would they take it for themselves? And this is exactly the same temptation that was at work with Abraham and Sarah. At Sarah's insistence, really her impatience and disbelief that God would give her a child, Abraham took her servant Hagar in order to force God's hand and bring about God's promise. Think about that. He was trying to force God to make good on his promise. It's not unlike the parable of the prodigal son, where the younger brother, discontent to wait upon his inheritance from his father, demanded it now, essentially announcing he'd be happy to see his father dead, and in turn took the money and nearly destroyed his life. It's the same language, the same language that's used with David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba was beautiful, and David, as a delinquent king, turned peeping Tom, looked down into her house during what Bathsheba assumed was a private moment. And as the prophet Nathan indicates in his parable to indict David, David took what was not his to take. Like Ahab and Naboth's vineyard, Bathsheba belonged to another man and was forbidden fruit. You know, sometimes God promises us things that we must wait for, like wisdom. But sometimes there are things in this world that are good and beautiful, but will never be ours to take. This is why a core part of loving your neighbor is bound up with the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. That is, you shall not lust after what is not yours to take. Because left unchecked, you will eventually try to take it in one way or another. For Eve, the fruit of the tree was good for eating. It was good for eating. And her actions, either by an act of faithfulness or unfaithfulness, would teach her the difference between good and evil. And after the fact, she knew. And ironically, Satan was partially right. Her body did not immediately die, though, of course, spiritually, she was immediately separated from God, which is the far worse death. Demonic attacks are perhaps most poignant in the scene with the next generation in Genesis 4, with Eve's children. When instead of Satan using a serpent, God warns Cain that sin is crouching at the door. Sounds like a, a great cat, like a lion waiting to pounce. Its desire, he says, is contrary to you. It's against you. But you must rule over it. This, of course, is exactly what Adam failed to do with the serpent. He failed to rule over it, and Eve, in turn, was deceived. So instead of speaking through some version of a tangible snake, it is an invisible thought 
a voice working like a splinter in Cain's mind, tempting him to reach out in anger for what he thinks will bring him justice for a slight to his pride. It's very similar to the warning Jesus gives to Peter in Luke 22 in the midst of of Peter saying he would never betray Jesus. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, Jesus knows he will fail, that you might strengthen your brothers. My point in all of these biblical examples is that Satan and the demons most often attack us by way of our fears or our anger or our misplaced desires for things or people that do not belong to us, capitalizing on the sinful belief that God does not have our best interests at heart and does not provide for us like we think we deserve. And this is made especially difficult for us as we live in times that tell us it is unthinkable. It is unthinkable to have to wait for anything. And it is an injustice that we ever have to endure with being uncomfortable or unhappy. And though I do not rule out the kind of attacks that that Job faced, we are most often bombarded, daily even, by the small little splinters dividing our hearts and minds, goading us to act in ways that will actually hurt us, though we think they are for our good. Well, this short scene is bracketed here in Luke between the crowds marveling at Jesus' majesty and his disciples' utter confusion and incomprehension. And the gap between the two reactions is explained by what Jesus says right there in the middle. Jesus says this to his disciples. You... Let these words sink down into your ears. That's how it works in the Greek. It's like he's pointing at them. Hey, pay attention. Let these words go deep into your heart. And this is similar to the idea already seen in Luke's gospel when Mary treasured up all the things she had heard in Luke 2. Things like what the shepherds who had been visited by the angelic host proclaiming the birth of the Messiah said to her, about her son. She remembered those events even as she did not really understand what they meant. So too here, Jesus is telling his disciples, what I'm about to tell you, you need to keep this deep in your heart. Don't forget it. Don't dismiss it. You need to ponder this. This needs to stick in your craw as it may be. And what follows is his second announcement of his coming death and crucifixion. Now this time, in comparison to earlier in the chapter, in 9.22, it's an abbreviated, a much more abbreviated version. There's no mention of the shepherds of Israel, so the elders or the chief priests and scribes. They're simply called the hands of men. And notice too that he says the son of man is about to be delivered. The Son of Man, as we've talked about in the past, draws links both with Ezekiel and with Daniel. Jesus, like the vision Daniel receives in Daniel 7, is the Son of Man who will be received into the throne room of God. That's the Ancient of Days, as as Daniel describes him there. And he writes, And to him 
The Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So through this Son of Man, the Ancient of Days would wage war against the beasts, really the Gentile nations, that threaten his people, and he would sit in judgment over them. But how does the Son of Man come to his victory? How does he wage war? How does he receive, he's given dominion and his kingdom? And in turn, how do all the nations and languages come to serve him? Well, to the Jewish mind, and perhaps maybe to our American mind too, the kingdom of God comes through conquering. And conquering means he treads down his enemies. And of course, there is something to that. I mean, after all, the Assyrians were conquered by the Babylonians, who were in turn conquered by the Persians, who were in turn conquered by the Greeks, and on it goes until you get to the Romans. And these are all the beasts of Daniel's vision, and God claims to conquer them all, and he literally did. But what God was after was not so much destroying the nations, completely wiping them out, but bringing them back to himself. So this is, for example, exactly what Jonah rejected. He did not want to see Assyria come to faith. And what the disciples find so stupefying, what they can't understand is how the Son of Man can conquer his people's enemies by dying at their hands. How do you conquer the Romans by being crucified by them? And notice that Jesus says he would be delivered. And for good reason, this is highlighted every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. You'll hear me say it every time. Every time On the same night he was betrayed. To be delivered is to be betrayed in this sense. It's to be given over to an enemy by treachery. It's treachery because a person is given over to his enemies by someone he trusts. Most often friends or family. This is precisely... For example, what Jacob's sons did to their younger brother, Joseph, and their jealousy of him and their rejection of God putting him in authority over them. The Ancient of Days, God the Father would give the Son of Man, His Son, Jesus, the Christ, dominion and a kingdom without end, and it would come by Him, the Son, being given up to His enemies. Those enemies were both the Romans, representing the nations, but also the shepherds of God's people, like Joseph's brothers. So the very people the Son of Man came to give life to and bring into his kingdom are the ones who would soon put him to death. And this treachery, this betrayal came from, of course, one of the twelve, Judas, even as virtually all the disciples left him in the hour of his greatest needs. John alone followed Jesus all the way to the cross with the women. Well, in verse 45, Luke says, but they did not understand, that is, the disciples did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So there's, if you're paying attention, there's three different things at work with their confusion. So first, obviously the disciples did not understand the word about the cross. 
It was offensive and scandalous and the source or one of the important sources of their confusion. Now, in our times, we are not so much scandalized by the cross. And in a certain sense, the cross has been, I don't know, completely domesticated and lost its teeth. Right? So no one is looking over my head right now and thinking, what is that God-forsaken ugly symbol doing here? Right? We tend to find crosses to be beautiful, even wearing them as, as jewelry. No, we, we tend to be scandalized by Jesus' teaching and his descriptions of what the life of his disciple actually looks like. And of course, people who heard his teaching were scandalized by it too. So for example, as can be seen virtually everywhere in our country, it is Jesus teaching on sexual ethics, amplified most clearly in Paul's writings, but also in the Old Testament too, that we find so distasteful, if not appalling at times, even in traditionally conservative areas such as ours. While we may have little difficulty frowning on the beliefs and practices of urban centers on the either coast and places like San Francisco readily come to mind. Still, we take David's desire for Bathsheba or Potiphar's wife's desire for Joseph as a given, as a desire as easily satisfied as wanting an extra donut or three on vacation and no more sinful than that. And in turn, we think taking and giving away our bodies whether virtually or to a tangible person, is just how things should be done. It's just the way things are. Why not give in to this pleasure? Who's it really hurting? Why be confined to the cage of marriage or loving just one person for the rest of your life? Or worse, why be forced to wait for God to give you what you want, especially when you can have it right now? As so many Christians have come to hear in the back of their mind, not unlike Cain with his brother, surely God wants me to be happy. Surely I have a right to do this thing right now. I mean, if it feels good, how can it be wrong? The young people who refuse to engage in the free giving and taking of their bodies, and again, both virtually or in reality, as if their bodies and the hearts and minds that are entwined within their bodies are impervious to such pleasures just because they're young, those people are rare. And they were rare in my day too. Even within God's people, they are rare. And as anyone in middle age suffering with type 2 diabetes or coronary disease will tell you, the path to the, to the destruction of their bodies did not come from discipline, but from giving in to things that were sweet and seductive. And that coyly whispered, oh, I bet you can't eat just one. And we said, just you watch. Simply because it feels good in the moment, like a donut, does not mean it will not cost you dearly later. That Jesus teaches this and insists on a different way of life for his people is scandalous to us. Even as we, without hesitation, claim him as Lord and Savior, how much more so then to those who do not know Christ? Second, the understanding of what Jesus would accomplish through his death on the cross was hidden from the disciples so that they might not comprehend it. 
Now, this would not always be the case, but for the time, it was. So for the meaning or significance of an event to be hidden from the people of God, even someone as close to Jesus as his disciples, is not at all unusual. So consider that two of the greatest prophets of the Bible, Moses and Elijah, could not possibly have understood how their lives anticipated and looked forward to the Christ. But at the transfiguration, their standing and talking with Jesus were Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus about the coming exodus that he would soon accomplish in his death and resurrection. And what was clear to them at the transfiguration would have been murky at best, a shadow, if not utterly confusing to them, a millennia earlier when they lived. The disciples were told how events were about to unfold. They know how the story ends, even as the meaning of those events were hidden from them for the time being. It's why, for example, the events on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 are a key moment in Luke's gospel. In that scene, Christ has been crucified and raised, and the report by the women of his resurrection has been given to the disciples. Still, they're struggling to believe, and they certainly don't understand it. A few of the disciples, and and these were some of the disciples from his, his wider circle, not the remaining 11, they had left Jerusalem, despite Jesus telling them to wait for him in Jerusalem. And on the way to Emmaus, they encountered Jesus. But as Luke writes, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So they're being held back. God is holding them back for the moment. They begin to discuss what had just happened in Jerusalem with Jesus' death and, and how they hoped that Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus in turn says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? You know, the very things they've been telling his disciples, at least since Luke chapter 9. And this is exactly what Moses and Elijah understood and discussed at the sneak peek of Jesus' glory and precisely what was veiled from Peter, James, and John, even though they knew what was coming. Jesus then taught these, these men on the road, working through Moses and the prophets, so Moses and Elijah, that everything in the scriptures looked forward to and found its fulfillment in him. And it was not until these two disciples were sitting down to eat with Jesus that they recognized him in his breaking of the bread and the blessing of it. That is, they recognized that they were sitting at the king's table. It was only then that their eyes were open. In other words, Jesus kept the meaning of what was coming in his death and resurrection from them, even as he told them exactly what he was going to do and what was going to happen. And it's hard to know exactly why God would do such a thing, but I think it's, it's bound up with how he grows us and our trust of him. He promises life and then asks us to wait upon him to give it to us. He says, I'm going to do this for you. Will you wait? Will you wait on me to do it? And that's precisely how Hebrews 11 talks about faith. This was the test put to Adam and Eve. It's the test put to Cain. It's the test put to Abraham, Moses, and David. It's the same test that Peter faced when Satan asked to sift him like wheat. 
though you cannot see how all these things will work out for your good, can you trust that God has your best interests at heart and will give you the life he has promised? Third, the disciples' confusion, and this is the one I probably understand the most. The disciples' confusion was because they were afraid to ask Jesus what he meant. So to be sure, among Christians in our circles, there is a real fear of looking stupid, or worse, appearing as if we are bad or lousy Christians for not knowing or understanding every last thing there is to know about God and His Word. This is why, for example, when I'm teaching, you know, say on a, a Sunday night or a Sunday school or whatever, and I ask a question, there is almost always a long pause before anyone dares to answer. We'll put that to the test tonight and see what happens. Now, sometimes it's because I've asked a question that nobody actually knows the answer to. Fair enough. But sometimes the question might be something like, can you tell me who suffered and died and was raised from the dead on the third day? Here's a hint. His name rhymes with Bezos. And still, there'll be that long pause, and you can see everybody going, What's going on with that? You know, related to this, and I often hear this as, as a preface to questions. Listen, I, I know this sounds stupid. Or, I know I should know this already, but. Or, I can't believe I have to ask this. And what it betrays is the shame we feel because we think we should already know everything there is to know. And that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. I'd argue I'd probably probably, maybe not, but probably know the most about Scripture and theology in this congregation, and yet there is not a week that goes by that I don't find myself mistaken or ignorant about something or another. And more than once, I've considered removing old sermons from the website. And I went and looked. Some of those sermons, they actually go back to January 2014. And I'm not sure they're useful for anybody for them to be up there except to say, wow, that guy was because I know I've gotten things wrong, or I've changed my minds about things, or I've grown in my depth of understanding. It's why I've done Jonah twice since I've been here. You know, even when we know what the right answer is, we fear looking bad among other Christians. We don't want to get the answer wrong, or we don't want to give an answer that doesn't sound as full, or mature, or as well studied as we think it should. It's why when I was in seminary, I was terrified of being called on in class, even when I was confident I had the right answer. I'm so thankful for my PhD advisor, Joel Okamoto, who routinely told me I was an idiot and that I would stay that way if I didn't ask more questions and if I wouldn't be willing to put myself out there and start answering questions. And you know what? He was right. He was right. But more often than not, what keeps us from pursuing Christ and His Word is not fear that God will be angry or frustrated at us for asking questions, like perhaps the disciples actually may be feared, but because we can't be bothered to ask questions in the first place. The reality of Scripture is that on the one hand, it is beautifully and elegantly simple. So simple that little, little children can understand what it means. But on the other hand, Scripture is also so deep 
and wide that it requires a lifetime of study and meditation. And, and why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't it? If our God has revealed himself in Scripture, we ought to expect that the treasure we find in his word should be more than a plastic trophy given out as a participation award. To put it another way, the husband who thinks he, is, he has women boiled down to a few basic aspects and in turn reduces his wife to a handful of stereotypes is not merely a fool. He has intentionally impoverished himself, even as he is too stupid to realize it. To put it still another way, it is telling how much time men will give to learning the intricacies of a game, even a complex game like football, and all the things that attend to that game. So they can tell you the difference between a play-action pass and an RPO. That's a run-pass option, for those of you who don't know. And how it really boils down to how the offensive line blocks. One blocks for pass, one blocks for a run. They could tell you about player personnel. They could tell you about stats, rankings, past history, and on and on it goes. And it is not as though such knowledge came easy, instantly or easily. It did not. It took years to obtain this knowledge. And because the game never stops... The learning never stops, and so by implication, they are committed. They are lifelong students of the, wait for it, game. Now, as a coach, I obviously have nothing against sports. I love sports, but games have their limits. What a game like football so easily makes apparent, at least for men in our circles, is how little we value God and his word and the ways in which he has called us to structure our time. As Thomas Watson once put it, is not he a fool who minds his recreation more than his salvation? You see, we've been given the great privilege of centering our lives on Christ and his word and the beauty and the riches of his word they know no end. If you come to a Sunday evening, if it seems like I'm totally nerding out, it's because I am. It's because I want you to desire this word and see how incredible it is and how profitable it is for growing in godliness and holiness. You see, the king has invited us to know him and to sit at his feet and to learn and listen to him. Let's make use of that privilege. Let's, let's act on that privilege. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. You have given us your Son, your Word made flesh. May we grow in his likeness. May we learn to listen to him. May we be taken by his beauty. May we be, even at times, stupefied by how deep and rich he really goes. We thank you for him and the power of the Spirit. Amen.